Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Gigabit Nation, Broadband Talk Radio. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and I want to welcome everyone in the audience today. We are here, as always, to provide useful information and insights to help public, private, and nonprofit organizations get faster, better broadband to everywhere it needs to be in America. One of the more um, interesting items that crossed my computer screen last week uh, presented an interesting possibility. Could libraries become digital beaches in the drive in the the cities in all 50 of the United States? States. A drive initiated by the FCC's Gigabit City Challenge um, that basically says, you know, we want to try to get at least one citywide gigabit network in um, each of the 50 states. Now, inspired by Google Fiverr, there is a group of Kansas City librarians who have started the K-20 through Librarians Initiative. This group sees libraries at the um, schools, public schools, uh, colleges, universities, and general public libraries uh, evolving into, um, if you will, gigabit resource centers that drive both broadband deployment and adoption. Today, my guest is Don Means, who is uh, the founder and CEO of Digital Village Associates. And Don has actually been on our show before, and he has, uh, in the last couple of years, been spearheading a national fiber to the library initiative. And to give us more details on the initiative, but also what's going on specifically in Kansas City, uh, Don, welcome to the show. Thanks, Greg. Good morning. How are you? I'm great. All right, so we seem to have good audio here. We were having a little bit of an issue before we got went live, but I think we're good to go. Let's start talking about libraries. Most folks probably have not thought about libraries too much other than taking note of the fact that a fairly large number of libraries were wired up as part of the broadband stimulus program where middle mile networks were built out, uh, a lot of them connected institutions such as uh, government buildings, hospitals, and so forth. But libraries was kind of a constant, the constant institution that was wired. Um, what's that all about? What is the value of having libraries wired into uh, a gigabit network? Well, it's, it's a great question, Craig, and a, a good starting point, I think, for the discussion. Uh, maybe we can drop back a second and think about uh, the role that libraries have played in broadband deployment since we started calling it broadband in uh, in the mid 90s. Uh, we were, you know, we were all doing dial-up. Nearly all of us were doing dial-up at that time, and then uh, uh, broadband started being rolled out at certain places like public libraries, where a lot of people had their their first experience with streaming media you know maybe they found a a radio station from back home where they grew up and uh, they go wow that's cool I want that at home Uh, it's the idea that you can talk about uh, capacity and bit rate and you can show diagrams comparing straws to fire hoses and it just doesn't matter to almost everybody but if you give them an experience of a of a service an activity that's meaningful to them then they get they get that and they can well I don't care how many bits it takes per second to get that I just want that I mean assuming that it's that it's affordable so uh, the point is that libraries have been playing a role in uh, generating demand for broadband uh, since we first started calling it broadband and our position is that that's that holds true in this next generation of broadband that I think we're generally coalescing around referring to as gigabit broadband uh, as the sort of next level to drive demand. Uh, Gigabit being uh, a a bit rate that requires fiber, at least in my understanding of it, and that fiber is the the wired connectivity that we all want. Uh, Whether we can get it or not, I think that we all should be wanting it, and our proposition is that all the libraries, at least all the 16,500 public libraries, are ideal places to wire with fiber. 
that was the basis of our fiber to the library campaign that we started now five years ago, saying that if we run fiber to these 16,500 facilities, we will have delivered accessible next-generation broadband into every community in the country to what are called anchor institutions, libraries, schools, health facilities, and so forth. And that became uh, codified in the National Broadband Plan to deliver just that capability to community anchors in, in every community by 2020. Mm -hmm. So in essence, um, we have almost by default on that and, and sort of by plan, but uh, have, have kind of, um, I don't know, evolved our uh, understanding and our reliance on libraries as a central part of this equation, and 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 I guess when you look at the the number of articles and so forth, when they're talking about broadband, they will you know they always reference the fact that people go to libraries to get computer access, and in a lot of places where folks have no other option to get to the internet, often they will go to the library to to get that access. So we have. Yeah. You know, yes, we definitely have been going down this path. Um, the, the luckily the the national broadband plan picked up on this and uh, in some respects I guess codified this uh, this way of thinking or or I don't know gave it you know definite shape and and purpose and programs when we started getting around wrapped around that. Um, let's extrapolate then from that to what has gone on in Kansas City. Because when you were on the show before, actually, Kansas City was, thanks to the Google uh, Fiber project, was getting a lot of, uh, I guess, extra boost in, in publicity and awareness of libraries uh, because librarians in Kansas City were really jumping on this with both feet. Is that true? Uh, yeah, that is true, uh, Craig, and, and it is a really interesting project. Uh, but to pick up on your, your point or maybe your question about libraries providing access, uh, Internet access to portions of the population, I think this, uh, we should just touch this on this for a moment. Um, I think everybody is aware or should be aware that a lot of people uh, have no Internet access at home, and you know, there are quite a few people that don't even have a home. So uh, the libraries become their principal, if not sole, point of access to the Internet. Uh, but it's not only people that don't have uh, home or home connections or even homes. Uh, One-third, this, this is about a two-year-old study now, uh, roughly one-third of all adults access the Internet at a library. This is people 15 and up, so they're more than that. Uh, uh, you know, that are accessing it that are uh, 15 and younger, or younger than 15. That number is roughly 80 million adults accessing the Internet in the library, and three-fourths of those do have uh, uh, Internet access at home. So there's something about the environment of libraries. Maybe it's the speed of the connection, the quiet, uh, the comfort, something, a bunch of different factors. But it's a service uh, to the public that uh, I think has a tremendous value. If we just put a dollar value on that of $10 per person per year, what uh, you and I might pay for an hour at the airport or a day in a hotel, but for a whole year of access at, a, at the library in your neighborhood, that's $800 million, which is enough money to wire every library in the country, upgrade their local networking gear, and provide staff training, some tens of thousands of dollars per facility. And as we say, you know, there's no bigger bang for the buck than delivering upgraded services to that many people, uh, digital divide, you know, notwithstanding. So it's both we see libraries as taking care of everybody that might be at the trailing edge, and then we also see them as leading edge institutions where we can experiment with emerging technologies and that libraries can be drivers of demand and test labs and showcases, as we talked about in the, in the, in the first question. In Kansas City, we've got, you know, an example of that. Uh, it's not so much related to uh, strategies for communities uh, or or government programs. This is a this is a Google investment uh, in the infrastructure, the communications infrastructure uh, business uh, in Greater Kansas City. So uh, we've been working with the libraries there on. Uh, on utilization and partnering strategies. 
So what good is a gigabit? How do you use it? What kind of things really are high bit bandwidth uh, demanding types of activities? Uh, uh, high def video conferencing is obviously one, especially if you use uncompressed video, which is a, a much, much, uh, much, much higher demand uh, on on your connection. On the partnering side, the uh, the question came up: Well, you know, the libraries are almost a universal community connector. They can they can tie into almost any institution or group or activity in a community, whether it's public safety or cultural uh, uh, activities, civic engagement, uh, or education. And education is one of the public library's missions. Of course, it serves learners uh, who are primarily self-directing, but they also do you know, classes and various different things. But education became the obvious partnering area for the library. And so the Kansas City, Kansas librarian, Carol Liebers, uh, proposed calling together all of the librarians within the fiber footprint, being the, the school librarians, the, the college librarian, the University of Kansas librarian, and then there's a, a medical research center that's also there, KU Medical Center, which has an outstanding library. Mm -hmm. And so these librarians uh, all got together and started uh, imagining ways that they could uh, work together in bridging their institutions with various kinds of services and resources and databases. Uh, and that became the, the K-20 Librarian Initiative that's now been running for about a year and is uh, spawning a variety of different collaboration projects. Uh, at the national level, that idea of uh, librarians, school, public, and academic librarians working together as, as almost one whole system, or at least an integrated system across the whole uh, educational institutional spectrum, uh, we think is a really powerful idea. These mm -hmm. institutions are very different in terms of how they're governed, how they're funded, uh, who they serve and yet they constitute a de facto whole system. And so it's our, it's our position that because of the pressures of changing, rapidly changing technology, combined with uh, uh, downward public budget pressures, this sets up uh, the, the case for closer alignment, if not integration, of our educational, especially our publicly funded educational institutions, to think of it as a whole system, one, mm -hmm. one integrated system supporting lifelong learning from, from preschool to postgraduate and any other kind of learning requirement that any learner anywhere wants. We're seeing the, the MOOC phenomenon, the massive online courses uh, coming up just now and starting to challenge the university uh, proposition. So it seems like we're finally arriving at that point where the technology and the need to rethink and restructure and reengineer how we how we provide learning opportunities has arrived, and we see the librarians right at the forefront of that. And in Kansas City, uh, they're taking a lead on it. Mm -hmm. Let me ask a question. This um, uh, has popped up on Twitter, and we have talked about this a little a uh, little bit um, the last time you're on the show, which is a logistics question. If you know, you, you talked about if we charged um you know ten dollars per person for all of those 80 million people who currently uh use the library for the you know, ten dollars for the year so we're talking like what less than a buck a month um why have we not or how why has not somebody advanced this idea and and have done the math and 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 made a strong case for actually doing this or have they and we just in the media or whoever hasn't picked up on it yet well, the reason is that uh, libraries are free. <laughs> I mean, this is their this is their basic uh, proposition: is unlimited access to uh, information for free to anybody. I mean, you you can walk into a library with your device, uh, select the uh, the access point, and you're on. And usually, you don't even have to agree to terms of service. So. This is the history of libraries. You can, you know, even if you're not a member of that particular library, you can walk in, uh, 
and pull something off the shelf, sit down, and, and read it. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing with uh, the Wi-Fi access. So there's no, uh, there's no precedent for charging. And I wasn't proposing uh, that libraries charge $10 per year. I was making a value proposition that this is uh, 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 the value, a minimum value of a service is provided for free to anyone in the local community, visitors coming in, anybody. That's the right. library credo. So mm-hmm. uh, the, the only times that libraries seem to charge are things where they have hard costs related to the service, like making copies of paper, or maybe in some cases libraries now that are, that are creating all kinds of different flexible spaces may charge a, a use fee for a, for a space for someone's function, uh, those kinds of things. So Okay. Uh, let, let me interrupt just for it, one quick second, yep. Don. Don, let me interrupt yep. for one quick second. Um, is it possible you can switch to Skype, or are you using Skype currently? I'm using Skype currently. Okay, because we're we're having some uh, real static issues here, and I'm not sure how to um, address those kind of in real time. But uh, now you sound fine. Uh, we'll we'll move forward, but just be aware that that's I'm not I'm actually I'm not sure how exactly to fix that one. Um, okay, but I don't want. I want to come back to the uh, to this idea. So I understand that libraries have not charged. On the flip side, you know what you've just described is that they have charged for things such as using paper, or using the copy machine, which I'm assuming they've done because of you know they're offsetting the overhead of maintenance and, and so forth. Um, using that basic philosophy. Um, wouldn't it make sense to consider, I mean, again, coming back to, you know, how onerous is, is $10? I mean, there's a philosophical issue, right? And I don't want to sort of detract from that. The philosophical issue is that libraries have always been free. At the same token, libraries have been shut down in cities where, you know, they couldn't find the money to keep the service up and, and, and running. And so, you know, the idea maybe of using it with the philosophy that, you know, the same way that we charge or libraries charge for making copies, this might make sense. Or another option might be to look at it as um, a, a donation, you know, whereas we say, look, you know, get a, you know, make a donation, get a card that maybe entitles you to some ego stroke kind of benefit and 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 raise the money that way because, Knowing how vital libraries are, I think if someone did the math and said, you know, for a community of, you know, X to 100,000 people that has 20 libraries or 10 libraries, that, um, you know, they could conceivably raise this money to create uh, a better infrastructure or to expand the infrastructure, in essence, as an extension of the library into literally the the far corners of the communities they serve. I mean, does either one of those sound like it might be viable, doable, marketable? Well, I'd I'd say that the 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 issue on charging it really goes counter to the to the tradition of libraries. Uh, where they do charge is where they have a variable cost, like you know each sheet of paper. Uh, is a variable cost. We have fixed costs, which is like the whole collection of books, the building itself, all that is is no charge. However, your point on uh, fundraising or donations, uh, I think this is the approach. And so my point about the value proposition is is helping communities understand the value of their libraries right. in a digital era. Mm-hmm. And that doing fundraising around, say, a technology budget which would include not only uh, 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 internet connections, but devices as well. We're starting to see libraries acquire uh, tablets and readers and put those into circulation, even checking them out, in addition to uh, buying or licensing uh, e-books, which is a whole other topic we don't have to get into, but it's it's clearly a, 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 a moment of arrival for libraries where uh, uh, e-books, digital books, are challenging, you know, what is the the role of a library. So, I think it's 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 on the onus of the community to support their libraries and understanding the value they bring is uh, a reason to do that. And that's part of what we're trying to do is help people understand how much value they're getting and how much more value they could be getting by supporting their libraries in a very uh, you know, minimal degree to upgrade a lot of these services. 
Mm-hmm. Now, the um, this latest initiative in, in Kansas City, the um, K through 20, let's talk about that a little bit because that seems to be an evolution of, you know, I guess the original initiative, you know, that, that started that you and I talked about a year ago or about a year ago. Yeah, that's uh, uh, again, you know, fiber to the library campaign uh, of upgrading connectivity. Next generation, every library is has been the sort of the, the founding work. But as we get into it, uh, we've sort of and and through the Kansas City opportunity, their need to do outreach and partnering, uh, we then began to look at all types of libraries in the same light. The, the school libraries, the college, university, academic libraries, and even the special libraries as natural allies in each community. Mm-hmm. Now, librarians associate by their specialty, by those various types, and you know there's a lot of different requirements and resources and so forth, whether you're a school, public, or an academic librarian. And they have their own associations, they have their national associations, they have state associations. But at the local level where they share the same uh, geography and there's a big overlap in their constituents, uh, what we're seeing in Kansas City and starting to in other places is that there's a lot of potential for these librarians to to collaborate in the uh, in jointly uh, serving a, those that local community where they are. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, and we just haven't found uh, much example of this anywhere where librarians of all types representing their different institutions are actively collaborating and partnering at the local level. And we mm-hmm. see just tons of opportunity for this because there is a lot of overlap in the in the in the patrons, the users, the customers, the the students uh, that could benefit from. Uh, Alignment on research skills and terms, uh, potentially aggregating purchasing power on on resources like databases, uh, and also working with other each other in the development of various kinds of of uh, uh, learning activities and information uh, systems. An example in Kansas City is the the research center, the medical research center, is developing a a new interactive protocol uh, procedure for how to do telemedicine, how to conduct interviews with uh, patients or uh, clients in their homes, and they need to develop that. So a, a logical way to do that would be to set up a, a, a kind of an intermediate uh, point in a library or a school where someone could come in, interact with the nutritionist or the, or the health care advisor, uh, and test out the best ways, the best methodologies, the best technology to enable that kind of interaction. Right. So we have a, we have a call coming in. Kind of partnership is easy to do. Sorry. No, I want to hold that thought for a second. We have a call. I don't want them to be on be on hold too long. Sure. Hold on one second. Okay. Okay. Good afternoon. This is Gigabit Nation. Do we have a guest? Uh, you sure do. This is Chuck Sherwood calling. I've uh, been listening uh, and really enjoying uh, the conversation you and Don have been having, and I I really want to uh, applaud, uh, once again, Kansas City uh, building this collaboration between all of the librarians of the various anchor institutions. Uh, And I think that the role that they can play, uh, particularly in education and adoption efforts, are really crucial. One of the things that I think that the group in Kansas City might really want to consider is how are you going to use uh, your traditional media of radio, local television, and cable television, particularly the public and educational and government access channels on the cable televisions, uh, to further enhance the efforts to reach people. Uh, Not everybody is necessarily going to come into uh, the library. Uh, 
even though, uh, you know, between all of the different libraries that Don has been talking about, you're going to be reaching a lot of people, but there are people who will not be part of all of that. And I'm just curious if, if Don and his uh, group uh, have thought about how do they use the resources available uh, from the more traditional media. By the way, I love the term gigabit broadband to differentiate it. High speed never really worked for me, <laughs> and broadband is too plain vanilla. So, Don, you all have really nailed it, calling it <clears throat> gigabit broadband. Well, well, hello, Chuck. Thank you for uh, the question, uh, and I'd like to actually hear more from you on this. Um, it, it, the The idea of the library as a as a uh, community laboratory and makerspace, I think that's that's taken hold there, and the idea of setting up uh, things like media labs, production facilities inside of libraries, whether they're public or school or or college libraries makes a lot of sense, and there's there's movement in those directions, not just sort of the media production, but uh, you know these traditional makerspace phenomena of uh, 3D printing and robotics and software development. All these kind of activities look like they're finding uh, homes in in libraries. Uh, but it sounded like you were inferring that the library then is also could be a vehicle for. Uh, for media that's produced in in these uh, public uh, uh, public access groups that that would flow through the library, could you talk a little more about that? Chuck? Well, I, I, I'm thinking more about how the libraries could use the resources in the public educational and access centers. Uh, assuming you, you you all have those resources in Kansas City, I'm not that familiar. But keep in mind, Don, that historically the whole PEG access movement that really got going uh, in the in the mid 70s uh, when the FCC mandated in cable franchises that there be channel capacity set aside for PEG access. Keep in mind that in, throughout the country, there are an awful lot of libraries that are either manage or have PEG access centers co-located in them. That this is, and, and when I fell into the kind of Alice in Wonderland of public access at Manhattan Cable in, in the mid-70s uh, and got involved in starting up government access for the borough of Manhattan, some of my earliest examples and people that I was networking with were the media librarians. Uh, and so, you know, libraries have always been part of all of this. Uh, so it's it's more like remembering our history, which has always been one of my big mantras, uh, that uh, we we really have to remember what's out there. In fact, you could uh, you might find it of of interest. Uh, there is something called the communitymediadatabase.org website, and you can go ahead and determine state by state where the access centers are, what municipalities, and who manages them, and whether they're managed by libraries or by the city or by a nonprofit. Uh, CMDB uh, really goes ahead and uh, reveals all of that. But the, I'm really more pushing for the idea of, and makerspaces are the, absolutely the hottest thing going on right now. Uh, libraries are in the forefront of all of that. The MacArthur Foundation is throwing a lot of money at that right now. Uh, and in fact, I'm involved right now in a project to redo the access center in Worcester, Massachusetts, to transform it into a iSmart facility that would have a makerspace in it. 
uh, as part of the services being provided, in addition to all of and the computer labs uh, and uh, TV studios, uh, community radio stations, all of these are the resources that could be used for community education and broadband adoption. Excellent, Chuck. I will definitely follow up on that on that resource, but you're 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 obviously on top of this and and I think making the point that the traditional media production aligns uh perfectly with the notion of makerspace. It's just a type of making. And so exactly. building up on that, yeah, <laughs> building up on that is, is the way to go in the evolution of, of libraries, the rapid evolution of libraries I would say, uh which is happening and the identification that that libraries need Lots of spaces, different discrete spaces, sound environments with different kinds of uh, technology to enable different kind of activities, so that they're much more varied in the in the range of services they're providing to their communities. And if is, they don't like have the space within their own facility, Don, what they need to do is partner with other anchor institutions in their community who do have those services so that they're all sharing the same resources and the same channels of community communication. Yes, and hopefully uh, a common uh, standard of, of uh, connectivity. Oh, ab absolutely. In fact, I, I was, uh, you know, very upset with the uh, – with the NTIA when they suddenly uh, announced who were the anchor institutions and PEG access centers weren't part of all of that. Uh, the Shelby Coalition, which I'm sure you were well aware of, uh, did a, a wonderful job in D.C. educating the NTIA and the FCC uh, on all of uh, the importance of the anchor institutions, and it sounds like you all are, are really making a wonderful effort in Kansas City to uh, move that agenda forward. Let me get you, let you all get back to your conversation, which I'm enjoying listening to. Excellent. Thanks Thank again for okay, calling in, Chuck. Bye-bye. Well, in fact, uh, we have uh, co-found Shelby and uh, the Schools, Health, and Libraries Broadband Coalition to to advocate for uh, anchor institution connectivity, mm -hmm. it's our own sort of personal uh, view that that libraries, especially public libraries, are the quintessential community anchor institution. They're the mm -hmm. they're the the institution that serves more purposes, more open-ended uh, service than any other institution we have. And so, if we have to prioritize, if we have to prioritize, this is the best place to start. But like I say. Libraries, uh, you know, in schools and colleges, as well as other community institutions, all form uh, a, a continuum of institutions that can be seen as uh, part of one whole uh, learning system or, or learning environment. So that's our notion with the K-20 librarian is to, is collaboration across these uh, these institutions, librarian-led. Uh, in support of lifelong learning, we all have to kind of buy into the notion that that we're all learners, no matter you know whether we invented the internet or whether we're trying to learn English as a second language or you name it. We all have some learning challenge wherever we are, and that a system, a, a, a public infrastructure, communications-based infrastructure, to support that in every institution, every location, for every learner at any stage, anywhere is a, uh, a logical extension of, of the need for the reinvention of, of education. Mm -hmm. So the point is taken, um, and, but yet we see libraries also in the, in the uh, playing roles related to, uh, of course, job training, which is another learning activity. Uh, we see uh, there's a role in, in public safety for libraries as facilities that are, uh, uh, we've been having so many disasters lately, I think this really brings the point into focus, is that a hardened uh, library facility with backup power and communications is a logical place for people to go in a disaster lights out uh, environment. Mm 
We saw that at Katrina. We saw it again at Sandy. We've seen it in the, these uh, massive storms hitting the Midwest. People need to go somewhere at some point, if nothing else, to charge their phone. Uh, that's assuming the cell towers are still standing and a place to go to find out information that's happening on right around them, not just to get a message out to their mom that they're, you know, that they're okay, but what's the condition of, of, of the needs of their neighbors and the people right around them or their own need and how can they can get uh, information about that. It's a very interesting and highly uh, dynamic information that's different from the way we usually think about first responders. And so libraries are... Uh, logical places for communities to think about disaster readiness and recovery. Uh, and we've seen that and are seeing that more as these things keep mm -hmm. rolling up on us. So let's um, ask uh, another question. Um, how would you see well, – let's, let me set this up a little bit better. So I have a community, you know, we've been, we've 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 heard the gigabit city challenge, you know, from the FCC. Let's get a gig city in every, you know, in in every state. If I'm a city or a town that's looking to either greatly enhance the current broadband capabilities or create a strategy for bringing broadband to the community, what would be the role of the libraries if you wanted to make this central in the kind of scenarios that you're describing, you know, a hardened center for public safety use, um, a way to supplement knowledge, a way to be a bridge to, you know, other um, learning institutions. How, how would you see, does it become, you know, does the library become the first point or the hub of a physical structure? Does it become a, um, I don't know, a more of a marketing thing? How, how would you see or what, how, what steps would you recommend to um, use a library to instigate a bigger plan? Uh, well, I would say yes to all those questions, all those possible okay. uh, answers. <laughs> uh, the uh, it, it may not make the most economic sense to try to simply get a fiber from uh, wherever the backbone is to uh, your public library or your all your library branches. It may make more sense to do an analysis to connect not only your, your libraries but your other uh, uh, public uh, agencies, offices, and, and schools. Though schools are typically operated uh, separately by, you know, it's just an autonomous school district. It's not the same thing as the the city and county government, which are the typical uh, domains of, of public libraries. But just doing that analysis and what it would yield if you actually ran a fiber connection to a, uh, a public library and what then, uh, as a hub, what kind of interconnect possibilities that would provide, both wired and wireless, uh, is a very interesting calculation. I know you've done a lot of these, Craig, in a lot of, uh, in a lot of communities. But uh, the, the notion of open middle mile infrastructure, which, which was the heart of the BTOP program, connecting uh, anchor institutions as priority endpoints and then as uh, uh, interconnect intermediate points for last mile providers of wired and wireless services to then hook onto on the theory that that would lower their, their risk and their cost of deployment. That was the that was where we spent most of that seven billion dollars uh, that we allocated for uh, broadband in the in the stimulus program. This seems to be working. There are some hundred and twenty or thirty, I think, uh, of these open middle mile projects around the country, and that there have been over five hundred interconnect agreements to those. And they're not, they're not fully built yet. They're supposed to be completed this year. All the money is due to be spent by September on those projects. But already we're seeing significant uptake from private and public last mile providers. So that is a, uh, that's a, uh, an example or really an architecture that seems to be working in a lot of places. Now that represents in total numbers probably only about 10 or 15 percent of total uh, anchor institutions around, but it is a big increase. It may be double the total number of anchor institutions which have fiber connections, and that may be a approaching a kind of a critical mass if we get a little bit of experience going. 
but already we're seeing a lot of promise from that. So uh, the challenge to this, this is there's no there's no standard model. There's really no template for what works. Uh, our view is that every community is a unique configuration of of density, of topology, of socioeconomics, and plus just the priorities, the public priorities of that community are going to be different. So it is absolutely not a one-size-fits-all situation. However, it is in the interest, and this is what we've been saying since we started the what we call the, the community telestructure initiative in the, in the late 90s, what we're saying is that it's in the that given this new world, given that this is a type of a utility, should be seen as an infrastructure, in the way that we've looked at traditional infrastructure in the past. It's incumbent upon that local community, however they define themselves, usually how they've done infrastructure projects in the past, you know, different kind of public jurisdictions and so forth that are proximate to each other. That self-defining community owes itself a formal strategy for this stuff and how it gets uh, deployed and how it gets used in the, in the broadest uh, general sense for the, for the community. And that doesn't mean that that is, not, that is technology agnostic, that you know, if you want to do wireless or if you want to run fiber to the fire plug, you know, figure out how to do it. Uh, and what business model it takes. You want to build it, you want to buy it, you want to encourage your current provider to upgrade. That's all part of the solution. But if you don't address it from the standpoint of the community, comprehensive community interest, then it's just going to be, it's going to just happen somehow. Mm -hmm. You say plan or be planned. Right. And, and so providers are not going to have this comprehensive viewpoint. They want to see every situation as standard. They want to apply a common solution in as many places as possible. It's just economics of a, from the provider side. But you have to uh, take the approach that, that no provider is going to have the perspective of the community. Otherwise, it's going to be the community. Right. And so right. Uh, creating a formal strategy and publishing a strategy for how to accelerate the deployment and upgrade of the infrastructure is incumbent on that community. And a role that the library can play, besides being a physical node in that network uh, or a point of deployment, uh, as well as a, a key access point, uh, is uh, its its opportunity to play the role of convener for this conversation. We've been seeing this in Kansas City, as a matter of fact, mm -hmm. <clears throat> where the Kansas City Library has been hosting uh, community meetings to talk about the implications of this new infrastructure project and what kind of things the community should do about it. So <clears throat> this is another role we see for libraries and librarians as natural conveners of what we call community technology policy, mm -hmm. as well as as well as public information policy. Not to get into a a, a nearby uh, issue, uh, but just with community technology, it's a it's a logical place to have these discussions. It's a it's a trusted environment. Librarians don't have to be technologies to facilitate this conversation. Right. They just have to bring the right people together uh, and, and lead these conversations. So. There's one happening or should be happening in every community. It's in a different stage. It has different uh, elements, requirements, goals, criteria, and the rest of it. But it is a conversation that's probably going on and could use a boost. And the libraries and the librarians are, are people and places, mm -hmm. we think, that could uh, enhance that, accelerate that, and help translate it into information that's more comprehensible to the general public as this stuff becomes more important, if not critical, and will require greater public participation in the policy decisions. Right. Now, one question or scenario that I want to run past you, because I have run into it both on specific uh, projects, but also in just reading uh, from uh, things going on in other communities, and that is the libraries, some of the libraries have received E-rate money, which basically locks their network down into what it can be used for. I'm um, working on a project in um, Iowa where the community is – well, they're using E-rate, but they also have a network, uh, a fiber network that was created by the states for all of the all of the cities but it ties in again to to libraries and schools and so forth and they can't integrate it they can't integrate it with any other plans 
or at least not easily so, you know, because like, one of the, 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 the conversations I've had is, um, well, what happens if we tie uh, homes into the same physical infrastructure so that programs going in from the library could go directly to people's homes? Or, you know, the same way that the school programs could tie in parents to certain lessons and, and, and software uh, directly to their homes. And you can't do a physical direct bridge from the physical infrastructure of the library to, uh, to, to desktops or whatever in people's homes. How do you work past this barrier or challenge, whatever you want to call it? Well, we're, we're, maybe we're talking about different layers uh, of, the, uh, of the communications network. Um, I mean, the Internet is our standard point of, uh, of interconnect. You know, it's a standardized protocol. We have a standardized interface and hyperlinks so that if you can get to the Internet, you can get to anybody else that's on the Internet, however you get there. Now, I don't know. Uh, there are a lot of different circumstances in, in, in terms of how people do access the Internet, uh, and uh, what restrictions are on those networks is going to be varying a lot. One of the, one of the leaders in, uh, in provisioning services to anchor institutions uh, is Internet2. Internet2 is a consortium of uh, university and education networks, state level, regional level, so-called R&E networks, research and education networks, uh, that, that uh, access this national backbone of Internet2. And they're also uh, looking to provide additional tiered services that help specific kinds of applications, like, like video conferencing, uh, work better uh, through the Internet. And actually, Internet2 is also a partner uh, on the K20 Librarian Project. So Digital Village and, and the K20 Project of Internet2 uh, have partnered at the national level to encourage the, these local consortia to, to self-organize. It's just an idea. It doesn't require any, any uh, special uh, skills uh, or, or there's no... Uh, intellectual property involved. It's just an idea that people can adopt if they want to. At the at the national level, uh, we're working with Internet2 on uh, uh, HD video conferencing as the most common activity. It's not an application, but it sits on top of the infrastructure that enables a lot of applications like distance learning and, and cultural exchange and, and the rest of it. And yet it's just very, very... Uh, a diverse set of solutions and technologies and providers uh, that make it all confusing, which is an example of why it's hard to use a lot of this technology that could do so many things, but getting, getting the technology to actually work well enough that average people, average users can take advantage of it is a whole different uh, problem. So uh, I can't answer uh, a general question about uh, difficulties of interconnect or or compatibilities, but you know the the general answer is that if you can access the internet, you can access the the resources that are on the internet. Right, and I think what um, so, so the kind of scenario that I'm talking about is, say for example, uh, a school has a uh, internet connection. They've got a fiber network built out with E-rate money, but you have times of the day uh, and night and weekends when that network is not being used at all. You have often the case where there is more capacity than the school is ever going to use. And so you, in essence, have capacity sitting there unused. And so what a lot of communities would like to do is be able to tap into that capacity so that if I am, you know, a local business, I am a local, you know, the parents of the of the kids that are in the school, that I can tie into that same infrastructure, which is a very different thing than if the school can get to the Internet and if the parents can get to the Internet in some other way, they can meet on the Internet. But the issue is that you've got infrastructure and capacity that can't be tapped because it was built right. with E-rate, right? So right. I'm trying to figure out, well, then yeah. what's the workaround? Yeah. It's got to be a workaround well, of some sort. It, it, it's... Uh... No, no, it is. It is a good point. It's an interesting point uh, in the evolution of our, you know, our subsidy system to support these institutions. So, so 
So what we saw in the open middle mile projects was exactly supposed to answer those limitations, that these networks were then built and, uh, and funded with the strict provision that they be open for interconnection, to do just what you're talking about, that they really serve the wider community, not just the anchor institutions. This has been the missed point. Uh, I mean, it, we can it, make, the, make the argument that we can justify just connecting the schools, the libraries, our anchor institutions for the benefit of the people that are at those places. But why have we been missing the bet to not leverage that investment so that those, uh, those middle-mile networks are then supporting last-mile uh, solutions? So I, I think that's embedded in that, in that program and that policy where it conflicts with E-rate, about which I am absolutely no expert, uh, on the limitations of what you can do with these connections that are being funded through E-rate is, is a related question, but I think it's uh, one that has to be addressed through E-rate reform. Uh, it's amazing that uh, uh, how many uh, institutions are dependent on E-rate uh, and and, and you know the schools and libraries are extremely nervous about any discussion of changing that at all, even as we see that this is a declining uh, fund. These monies come from our our landline, you know, phone systems, which are disappearing very rapidly. So I think we're coming to a point of, of transformation in the in the E-rate program, how we think about it, how we qualify for it, and just on that note. Uh, libraries, uh, a lot of libraries which are struggling for funds uh, refuse to take E-rate money because it, it has a filtering requirement on it. And this is anathema to libraries that they would restrict uh, yes, access to information. Mm -hmm. So they, libraries disproportionately uh, 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 get uh, less money through E-rate than schools do because of that, that single uh, requirement. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go a little afield here. Um, we've got about eight minutes, so we kind of need to wrap this thing down. But um, how does the, the, I don't know, the surgeons of e-books change or enhance this role of libraries as, you know, a, a central driver or a hub, if you will, of, of knowledge? It's a big question, uh, Craig, and a lot of a lot of libraries are asking it. A lot of publishers uh, and authors are asking this question. Uh, the right now, it's it's in kind of a state of workout because the publishing industry is under siege and transformation because of the digital uh, uh, phenomena. They don't actually know what their future role is going to be, and so. Uh, we're kind of where we were a hundred years ago when publishers were saying, well, why should we sell books to libraries? Uh, you know, if, if people could just go there and get one from free, they'll, why would anybody ever buy a book? <laughs> well, a right. hundred years later, that doing that uh, created a, an avid nation of readers that had demand for, you know, immediate access to their own books. And I think there's an analogy here in, in the world of e-books but let's not just uh, restrict it to uh, to a digital book. Let's just put the blanket over e-media in general. You know, all kinds of audio, uh, video, movies, TV shows, all of it in any digital form, created as uh, as private property. The to me the question sits on what is the appropriate shared public use license that keeps the tradition that we have created of pooling our funds uh, as libraries to buy media and share under a limited basis. You know, we buy one book. We all can't read it at the same time. It's a limitation, mm -hmm. and we've paid for that. Uh, but to do that in such a way that it does not uh, undercut the dynamics of the of the open market. So this it's it's a special issue with what kind of a public license, a shared use license uh, that's limited, serves that traditional uh, 
goal and purpose and tradition of of providing free access, albeit limited, to anyone with the uh, market forces that cause investment and uh, uh, and development of the of the very content. Uh, that we want access to. So it's a big question. I don't have the answer to it. I'm just mm-hmm. making the case that there is a model, that there is a portion of the private market that a public license, uh, a limited public license, can both uh, provide that traditional service and provide a market stimulus because it is a source of funds that goes into the private market, which we all depend on. Mm-hmm. So now I'm going to ask you a. I know I actually meant to give more time to this, but we'll we'll have to have another conversation. But in two minutes, um, can you give me an, like a high level, give our audience a high level overview of uh, you know libraries as test beds for applications? Because you and I have discussed this several times offline, but just a two minute version of that idea. Yeah, it's. Uh... You know, it's the it's the same thing about first generation broadband and and now next generation gigabit uh, broadband. Libraries are natural showcases. Uh, you can say test bed. It's a kind of a corollary uh, activity, but a place where you could uh, test uh, you know the efficacy of the new MOOCs, uh, the the massive online courses, uh, where you might want to test. Uh, massive online gaming as an environment. Uh, and it's not just testing the technology, it's testing the user's experience of the technology. So you have a natural lab kind of environment, and you could use it for just anything that might be coming up. And I, this is where we think that, that, tech, that libraries can be leading early adopters, maybe not bleeding edge when it's too expensive, but a stage where it's coming in, but it's too expensive yet for the home, but we could test it in a library by pooling our resources to acquire it and play with it and learn about it together. So I think there are a bunch of these, and it is a really interesting area to, to explore, and I hope we can do it at a later time. Mm-hmm. No, definitely, and I think that, uh, you know, maybe that would go under a, a headline of, you know, test beds in general. I mean, because in many respects, the gig.u project, uh, when you talk to Google, when they talk about the Google project in Kansas City, you know, lots of people talk about the test bed. You know, where do we create a place, an environment where people can test uh, application ideas and uh, see how they work before they, you know, decide to actually buy it and so forth. And I remember about a year or two ago when when the gig, you know, the idea of a gig becoming more popular was, was catching on. And people say, well, the biggest problem will always be that there's not enough gig networks to drive a market, which at the current time may be true. But I think what we miss in that comment is, yeah, there may not be enough gig nets to drive the market in terms of sales, but there's a, there are more and more gig networks that can drive the marketing research, which then sets the stage for later marketing as more gig networks come on board, which I think is this idea you know, you've brought up of, you know, being able to showcase and try out new apps in a library setting. Yeah, it's not just apps, uh, Craig, though, definitely apps, but it's also uh, uh, hardware devices. Oh, right, exactly, the hardware And, and, and an area that we haven't even talked about today, which I think is, is, is almost as important, is wireless. Mm-hmm. So uh, we say more fiber means better wireless. And this evolution of our wireless environment is a very big topic. The cell system uh, is predicted, uh, no one's predicting that the current cell system, even upgraded to 4G, et cetera, will be able to handle the media uh, demands that are being placed on it. So uh, the outlook is for smaller and smaller wireless cells that are fed, of course, into fiber connections. So uh, how that all happens, uh, both as uh, uh, in the context of the emerging unlicensed, new long-distance unlicensed spectrum that the FCC is making available, uh, I think all impacts the you know the fiber conversation uh, rather more than the gigabit conversation. Gig means fiber, but uh, fiber is the future for as long and, and as many bits as we can dream up. But exactly. that's a plateau, a worthy goal to reach, so that we can then build on that 
for faster connections, more devices, more ubiquitous connections. You know, we did. There's implications on on uh, embedded uh, communications in all of our machines, the so-called M2M uh, networks, which are lower bandwidth but were more pervasive. All of that ties together into one overall meta infrastructure, which is what we're thinking of the the future of telecommunications. Right, and with that. We're going to have to close. Don, thank you once again for being my guest today, coming back on the show. I look forward to having you again, and we'll explore more great ideas. My pleasure, Craig. Thank you very much. All right. Take care. And to our audience, thank you again for uh, listening. Uh, We'll catch you again soon. Have a great day.